Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the second talk episode on the Thirty Years' War. If you're back for more, that means that you didn't hate it the first time around, so that's great. I'm really excited to be able to present this kind of two-parter to you guys, because, yeah, I know that those of you out there who enjoy talk episodes and who kind of get more out of them really do appreciate this different format and it's also nice to be able to introduce overall the kind of the timeline and several themes which we'll be approaching in the totality of this series. We don't talk about anything in too much detail by itself because we're trying to get through an awful lot of stuff but hopefully it should still get you pumped up for what's to come. Just a note on a bit of housekeeping considering the fact that myself and Sean went on a bit of a few tangents in this episode in particular with our be fit unleashing on you guys i decided to cut be fit out in this episode 
and to leave it at the end of the episode after everything is done. So if you really want to hear us mess around with BeFit for about 10 minutes, and I'm not even joking, then stick around for the end of this episode. But if you just want to get back right into it, you won't miss much if you just cut out at the end. Sorry about that, Sean. I know we had a great time, but sometimes I do have to be reasonable, and I think inflicting 10 minutes of BeFit twice on people is... A bit unfair. So there we go. I hope you guys enjoy this. As a small reminder, we're taking the 30 Years War timeline from 1635. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode, which takes it from 1618-ish up to 1635-ish, then maybe go and listen to that or you might not know what's going on. If you don't care either way, if you're completely lost and you don't know what's going on, yes, hello, I'm Zach. This is a talk episode in which I talk to my friend Sean about history happenings. Anyway... Without any further ado, it's time to just unleash this episode on you guys. The next voices you hear will be mine and Sean's. Back on the podcast, and my guest, as always, is of course Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hello. And we are back here with the second part of our little mini kind of timeline summary series introducing all people of all sizes all shapes and all ages to the 30 years war so it's great to have you back sean thank you for joining us well joining us thank you for having me yeah <laughs> it's great because you're now the the royal we now that you're married so well yeah. i suppose you're used to discussing yourself as an us as opposed to a me yeah it's weird though i do say we a lot when i'm talking about the podcast it just feels weird to say i it feels like i'm being like i don't know boastful in a weird way by saying it makes it sound like everything revolves around me or something right and really it all revolves around the history and then obviously the people want to listen to you yes of course i would be nothing without them that's that's what i'm supposed to say so there you go that's the yeah that's the party line (laughs) yeah anyway so we we finished up last time just before the french got involved but before which is to say 1635 because obviously we can't have like a two-hour talk episode but before we start sean i have a very important question to ask you are you team ferdinand or team frederick uh Dick, doc, uh Dick, oh dear doc, oh dear i have to remember Dick. which one's which uh, <laughs> uh hang on a sec let me think I want to find the guy, the okay. guy okay, how about who this? is the, the lord of the Palinate. <laughs> the king of the Palinate is... So for, that means it's Frederick. Frederick. I'm Team Frederick. That's You're Team Frederick. Part. Hell yeah. yeah. I, I yeah, have a feeling you'd be Team Frederick. I mean, you well, got... he's... And he lives in, in The Hague, so I mean... Just because yeah. he went into Dutch exile? Well, <laughs> and also because he, yeah, no, the, my, my first ribbing him of him when I didn't understand the nuances of politics, like, yeah, I, I was like, oh, he's an idiot. And now that I've grown up a bit, I'm like, oh, he's a genius. My God, he's thinking like 3D chess or 4D chess. That's oh, no, oh, there Played we go. 4D chess. Yeah. OK, yeah. Team Frederick. Okay, I'll send you the t-shirt, and then you can make a big deal about it as well. From what I've seen so far, just from asking people, most people seem to pick Frederick, and I think that's probably because they respect the underdog. I also want to say, uh, Frederick V yes. uh, has a has a, uh, a nickname. The Winter the King. The Winter King, yes. Yeah. The yes, Winter indeed. King, yeah. The Winter Goning. Yeah, that's why on the t-shirt for Frederick V, it says, 
a king is not just for winter. Ah, I see. Right, because he's he served so short uh, yeah. a, a time. Okay, okay. And that's also kind of like a reference to dogs, because they say a dog is not just for Christmas, so dogs are like the best thing in the world. So there you go. I see. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 it. Just set there. If you ever yeah. get a dog, it's got to be Frederick the <laughs> Fifth. Yeah. yeah, that's a great idea. That's a very. That is. That is. And you can either call him Freddy. You could call him uh, the Winter King, or you could call him Fifth. So, sixteen thirty-five is the year that we're starting our story in, and two important things happen in sixteen thirty-five. First, there is the Peace of Prague, which basically uh, kind of brings all of the Holy Roman Empire together and commits the German princes. So Saxony, Bavaria, Brandenburg commits all of them under the aegis of the emperor to kick the Swedes out, basically. So what 1635 means for the Swedes is that all of the Holy Roman Empire is against them. They have no real chance of German allies, except for a few exceptions. And Ferdinand II does this by watering down the Edict of Restitution, which was the basically his the fruits of his victory in 1629. So he had to he had to roll back that a little bit in the name of the greater good of getting rid of the Swedes. And it was it was a good deal, but it he... was a good deal, but at what cost? Especially when you had your your uh, fanatical follower. What's his name? That'd be that'd be the Duke of Bavaria. He was. Still very important at this stage and would be more. Once Wallenstein yeah. is uh, assassinated on the emperor's orders in 1634, so literally the year before this, once Wallenstein is killed, that leaves the whole road open to the Duke of Bavaria kind of reasserting himself over the emperor again, just like old times. Right, um, but does that not ask the, the question then, how did he feel about r- rolling back the Edict of Restitution? Yes. How did he feel about that? Surely there was some tension there, obviously, being a devout Catholic and having mm. to concede, which I suppose is a huge win for the Protestants. Oh, yeah, it to, is. Yeah, it's like even even if the war's ends aren't exactly favorable for, mm. the, uh, for, the, for the Protestant side, they've made enough inroads during the war that they'll come out of it quite well. True, that is very true, but I think by this point in the war, I mean, it was 1635 now, the war has been going on nearly 20 years, and Bavaria has been in the thick of it basically all that time. I mean, Bavaria had been occupied by the Swedes, and it like it had been in a bad way, so Maximilian, the Duke of Bavaria, at this point he wasn't so fussed about the Edict of Restitution anymore because he realised that the most important thing was to get rid of the Swedes and end the war. And the Edict of Restitution did place the Emperor Ferdinand in a very good position because it gave him the kind of the image of leading the Germans, all of the German people, against the Swedish, the evil barbaric Swedish invader. So Ferdinand gets points, Bavaria gets to be left alone, so Duke of Bavaria was very happy with it. But yes, of course, he would have rather have had it the situation where the Edict of Restitution gets to stay. But for that to have happened, the Protestant powers would have had to have been fully okay with it. And because they weren't fully okay with it, they would never properly be on side. And of course, at this point, the Emperor is also coming near the end of his reserves, which is incredible because we're talking about 1635 and the war goes on for another 13 years. But yeah, everyone kind of... In the German camp, at least, most people were in favor of peace, but the problem was reaching that peace, and the Swedes, of course, did not want to give up. So this was a great boon to the Emperor's fortunes. And I should add, actually, it was made possible by a battle the year before in 1634 called the Battle of Nordlingen, which 
essentially resulted in the destruction of the Swedish armies and the kind of retreat of the Swedes back to the north, so onto the kind of north German coastline. And yeah, so the the Swedes were in the retreat. Now, now that Battle of Nordlinge, it's listed here as the first Battle of Nordlinge. Yes. So I assume that there will be another occasion where it becomes relevant. There is, and as if memory serves me correctly, the Second Battle of Nordlingen, and French and Protestant German allies, yeah, which you see a lot of over the next few months. Okay. Mention of the French there is handy because it leads us to the second important thing that happened in 1635, which all arguably was a result of the Peace of Prague, and that, of course, was the intervention of France full-blown into the Thirty Years' War. Oh boy, here it comes. <laughs> ah, and this is amazing because this is, you know, the French before they became the France that would dominate Europe. Yeah. So it was France immediately after its its religious wars. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that was still bubbling away now. At oh, the time. yeah. Well, it was bubbling away until the late 1600s, but for all intents and purposes, it had been pretty much dealt with in the late 1620s. One of the major French Protestant fortresses called La Rochelle was taken in 1628. So when that fell, then the Huguenots, the French Protestants, weren't as much of a threat. They weren't as much of a fifth column. So Cardinal Richelieu, our friend, the de facto prime minister of France, he saw that as a kind of victory for kind of stability and saw the opportunity then to make a proper independent policy. And of course... He was watching the Swedes make all their victories, and he was, of course, lending them money as well and making sure that they were successful. A, because... a million livres or something. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the, the big thing that happens then, sixteen, obviously in, throughout the 1630s, before, like in the early 1630s, before France property got involved, they were, of course, watching. It was in the French interest to see the Habsburgs be kind of distracted. And then, of course... Whopperly yeah. defeated and in the battle. What's amazing of is they were intervening indirectly from off January uh, thirty-one. So yeah, they were with the Treaty of Barwalde. That was when they agreed to give the Swedes a whole host of money in return for a Swedish like uh, pledge to hold a rather large army in in play at all times. Was that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right, yeah. Oh, great, okay. That was purely from memory, would you believe? Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, yeah, so throughout the 1630s, before the the French intervention, Cardinal Richelieu had been eagerly waiting for the chance to properly intervene, but knew that he had to play his cards very, very carefully. Well, we know he plays his cards quite carefully because the treaty also stipulates that Sweden could not conclude peace with the Holy Roman Emperor without first receiving France's approval. So France mm-hmm. could indefinitely hold a Swedish army in Germany. Yes. So I think we uh, we have a winner here in Cardinal Richelieu. I'm really warming to him. <laughs> well, there's a reason why he's got his own Morgan Patreon tier, let's just say. Okay, okay. He's very, he is very much accomplished, and we're quite big fans of his kind of his ingenuity. You know, he's actually the main villain in The Three Musketeers. I haven't actually seen any of The Three Musketeers movies, which is probably like sacrilegious to some people listening right now but i yeah. wondered where i knew that name from i yeah. thought he just i thought he was a completely fictional character <laughs> okay no originally okay yeah so there you go anyway what what is interesting to me is how 
Richelieu had been carefully moving the pieces around the board, so to speak, throughout the early 1630s. He'd actually been fighting a kind of proxy war in North Italy with the Spanish as well. So it's not like the French were just sitting by and twiddling their thumbs. But one of the important things that happens, the Battle of Nordlingen in 1634, as I mentioned, when the Swedes are totally defeated and they have to retreat to the north, that's kind of when the French are like, oh dear, for the sake of the balance of power, we better kind of intervene and do something. And then when the Peace of Prague is signed in 1635, Richelieu is really thinking to himself, okay, we really have to do something because all of Germany now is being set against the Swedes. And it wasn't even, like, look at it this way, it wasn't even that Richelieu wanted to intervene militarily in the empire and that was that. He also wanted to present France as the friend of the German Protestants and as the enemy of the kind of unconstitutional emperor who wants to take away all your religious rights. Like, France is, France is your friend and France will help you. But if there's no France there and if it's just the Swedish enemy against the Holy Roman Emperor, nine times out of ten, a German prince is going to pick his emperor, especially when the Swedes are clearly in the retreat. So there was a few reasons for French to get involved. But well, I, I, I think, Zachary, I think I'm going to have to coin a new term. I think oh. Richelieu would have been better off as Otto von Richelieu. That's what <laughs> I'm seeing here. I, I'm seeing a great statesman. Yeah, you know, well, he was. As he someone was. who's really able to play the game. Oh, he played the game all right. He absolutely played the game. And I think that, like, there's certain kind of, like, diplomatic greats throughout the different centuries, and Richelieu is definitely there among them. And he'd been there for a while as well, and he'd, since the early 1620s, he'd been kind of hammering away and and kind of building up his position. And within the court of Louis XIII, there was a whole lot going on. There was lots of different loyalties, and Louis XIII's mother was very protective and had her own faction in place. And it wasn't until... About 16, I think it's 1620, that Louis XIII kind of expels his mother and kills her friends, essentially. And then, wow. and said, well, he had to because they were meddling so much and everything. I mean, he didn't have to. I'm not trying to excuse murder right. here. No, but, no. But... <laughs> I, mean, I suppose at the time, you can't just be like, well, I'll get you a retirement home in Florida yeah. off your pop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He felt at the time that he had to, because otherwise they would constantly intervene. But that's why historians often make the point that it wasn't until 1620 that, like, the French were really in a position to properly do anything. But by that point, of course, as I said, they had the Huguenots to worry about, and Richelieu was very worried. And don't forget, he is a cardinal, so that could play into it too. His whole view of the French Protestants as not as loyal to the French king as the French Catholics, that whole attitude would become very problematic later on. But in any case, we're going to get sidetracked if we keep talking about him. The main thing you need... The main thing we need to know is that France did intervene in 1635, and from here onwards, with a few exceptions, it becomes fairly easy to classify the war in a kind of, like I called this in, in my book, I'm calling this the era of kind of coalitions, because on one side you had the Dutch, the French and the Swedes, and on the other you had the Habsburg family, so Spain and Austria, and you had Bavaria and you had some other German princes too, and you had some other like obviously minor potentates running around as well. And, of course, you have to factor in the King of Poland, who was the brother-in-law of the Emperor, Ferdinand II. And you had to factor in the Danes, who also get involved on the side of the Habsburgs in the early 1640s. So there's all these little things going along. But broadly, from 1635 to 1648, you have the two 
kind of similar armed camps. It's safe enough to call the Swedes, French and Dutch the Triple Alliance. That's what lots of people tend to call them. So that's what we're going to go with as well. All right. Well, that's uh, that's interesting because there's uh, a little bit further on. There's the uh, Battle of Velotho. Okay. Uh, 1638, the combined <laughs> combined Swedish-English Palinate force. So you, you really wow. do make the point of having uh, coalitions being yeah. involved. There's so much going on, but there's also no real easy way. I mean, like, look at it this way. At this point, Britain was kind of... I don't mean to, I don't want to say building towards civil war because that wouldn't really happen until 1640 but at the same time just because the British were kind of descending into civil war it doesn't mean any that there was no English divisions involved and that there was no Scottish command like one of the most successful commanders in Swedish service was actually a Scottish guy uh, I believe his name was Leslie I think so that that just goes to show you it was a multinational war and even when there was not a clear-cut example of a country being involved, that does not mean that that country was not wholly involved because the different marital alliances and all that stuff could mean that even if a country or a dynasty couldn't properly declare himself one way or the other, he could still send some men or suggestively say that, hey, if, if any of my soldiers want to volunteer, then I'm sure that would be okay. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if you get what I'm saying. Uh, yes, I do believe the man you're referring to is Alexander Leslie. There we go. Uh, commanding the army of Wesser. Yeah, there we go. So something like that. And actually that brings us to the Battle of Wittstock in 1636. In October 1636, a decisive Swedish victory occurred and this was a really, really important Swedish victory because, as we just said, the Swedes had been defeated two years before. And this Battle of Wittstock here kind of re-established the Swedish military reputation. The Swedish Allied Army was led jointly by Johan Banner and Alexander Leslie. And what... The first Earl of Levin. Yes. Uh, is born illegitimate, raises a foster child, and subsequently advanced through the Swedish field marshal and in scotland became lord general in the command of the army of covenants privy council captain of edinburgh castle in england he commanded guy. the uh, army of solemn league and covenant and was a senior commander in both mm -hmm. uh, of the army of both kingdoms yeah he was quite a badass and he also had a very impressive mustache as well Oh, yes, I'm seeing that moustache now. Wow, very good. <laughs> yeah, so the Battle of Wittstock was a very important victory for the Swedes. It kind of re-established Swedish military supremacy. But at this same time, we've talked a lot about Richelieu playing his cards very carefully. So it should surprise you to learn that initially the French were absolutely... Well, they were really, they had their rear ends handed to them, let's just say, in the late 1630s. Up until the front kind of stabilized, the Spanish invaded through three main points. They invaded across the Rhine through Alsace, and they also invaded from the Spanish Netherlands, so from Belgium today, and they invaded through the Pyrenees. And in these three major places, they put a lot of pressure on the French. And in the case of the Spanish Netherlands front in particular, the Spanish got within, I think it was in within 100 kilometers of Paris, something crazy. And that it was only in 1637 that the Spanish were actually turned away. So it was important in another way that the Swedish were winning these victories because 
really like in terms of like the French and the Swedish, the Dutch were kind of doing their own thing to a large extent at this point. But in terms of the French and the Swedish, it was good that the Swedes were winning something because the French were not doing so well at all in the first few years of entering the war. Really, the late 1630s didn't go very well for the French. But as you said, the wheels all come off the Habsburgs by 1640. And that's where we are going to look at now, because 1640 for Spain in particular was not a very good time. Do we uh, do we skip over the part where somebody dies? I'm pretty sure somebody dies. Did somebody die? Who died? Before we get to the to the actual, who died before 1640? Well, every, by now, pretty much everyone from the original is dead. Like Ferdinand II oh, like, dies. Yeah, from... he died in in 37. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Frederick V dies in 1632. And you all, as we as we said, Wallenstein dies 1634. He was very important as a general for like ten years, and the same with Gustavus Adolphus. Of course, he dies at the Battle of Lutzen in 1632. So, yeah, an awful lot of people dying out, and and the war is being taken over by new people. So Ferdinand II's son, Ferdinand III, just to make things easy for us takes over as Holy Roman Emperor. And yeah, to, to a large extent, these new people that take over aren't as connected with the beginnings of the conflict, so they're more interested in seeing it come to an end, which I think is fair enough. Having inherited war, I'm sure you just want to end it. One of the reasons why it became easier to agree to the end of the war is because a lot of the power had come out of the Habsburgs by 1648. And one of the major reasons for that was the fact that in Spain long considered like the kind of the powerhouse of the Habsburg family, Spain begins to kind of disintegrate at this point. Because in 1640, you have two revolts take place. And actually, this is kind of topical because one of those revolts is Portugal. And Portugal begins its war of kind of separation from Spain. And the other is Catalonia, would you believe? Ooh, I see, I see. We're having another one of those nowadays as well. Yes, indeed Very we interesting. are. Richelieu. Richelieu is is the one who helps support the Portuguese. What the French do now is help support the Catalonians in their legitimate claim to be an independent state. Why would why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because it makes Spain weaker, and then France is better. That's 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 how we need to start thinking. We need to start thinking like that back in Europe. It start seemed thinking. to have worked out. Yeah, it worked out so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. We need to we need to go back to trying to get one ups on each other. Yeah, twenty five years of war worked out so well. But yes, mm-hmm. yeah. the, long and, <laughs> the long and short of it was that Spain was critically weakened at this point, and the only thing the Spanish really had they didn't have security at home. A lot of the money was being used to fight these wars against the Portuguese and against the Catalonians. The French were, of course, only too delighted to help out the Catalonians, and they actually helped the Catalonian rebels and the French take over Barcelona or besiege Barcelona. I can't quite remember if they took it or not. But either way, what you do need to know is that Spain was beleaguered at home and could not do as much for the Austrians as they used to do. So with that, like with that kind of front stabilizing and the French no longer being as beleaguered as they were, the French are able to take some of their ambitions and invests them in the Holy Roman Empire instead, which means bad things for Ferdinand III. So it goes to show you that everything's all connected, especially for a power like France that's fighting on two fronts. One of the things that Spain still had, despite some defeats and setbacks, 
they still had their army. They still had the kind of the the legendary Turkio army, the kind of pikemen squares with the musket men on the outsides of them. And they also have the Spanish road. They do allow them to resupply and continue to maintain their territories without having to use boats. Yes, but the problem is between the Catalonian revolt, between the war that had been fought in northern Italy that I alluded to earlier, and between just general disorganization and the Swedes taking over parts of the Rhine at different points, the Spanish road was cut in the early 1630s, and then it was resumed, and then it was cut again in the late 1630s. So Spain's logistical kind of coordination is all shot to bits. The only thing it really has is its army, and with that army, it's it's obviously harder to transport it, but it does, it sends it to a place, a not a very well-known place, other than the fact that it hosted a battle in 1643 in the Ardennes. A little, nice little battle called Recroix. It was probably the most decisive victory that the French army achieved in the 1600s. mostly because after all the things that had happened to Spain and all the setbacks that the Spanish had suffered, this was really the death blow in kind of Spanish ambitions because now its army was destroyed on top of everything else. The Spanish, now the Spanish didn't like obviously just curl up and die after this, but there was like historians would look back on the Battle of Iroquois and see the French victory as the kind of moment that France like the kind of all-powerful France as we understand it came it's to the be. swing play. Yes. This is the thing that swung the whole direction of the war. Yeah, and it was the thing that, that Cardinal Richelieu had planned for. He, he had expected that eventually French might and French strength would defeat the Spanish and hopefully the, the Austrian Habsburgs. Obviously it took a while, but by this point in 1643 it happened. Now another thing you should know, and this is where it gets extra interesting for series that I've done since since looking at the Thirty Years War, but in sixteen thirty eight Louis the Fourteenth is born, so by sixteen forty three Louis the Fourteenth is five years old, and now France goes into a regency under Anne of Austria, and Anne of Austria was obviously part of the Habsburg family, so things are a bit confused, but one of the things that you should know about Anne of Austria, despite her relation to both branches of the Habsburg family, is that she is loyal to a fault to the kind of growth and powers and potential of her son. So she's going to do everything in her power to make Louis the Fourteenth great. And as we all know, she certainly succeeds, because Louis the Fourteenth would be the longest reigning European monarch and Arguably the most important king of the 1600s. I would say he was the most important king for the way that he shaped European relations like years upon years after. But in any case, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I've done plenty of episodes on Louis XIV, but it's just, it's interesting to see him kind of being established here. It just reminds you how connected all these different eras were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. What I really find interesting is... Uh... They, they do a little list of French, uh, <laughs> drumbeat of French victories, which I think is quite poetic. But uh, yeah. let's see, the Grave Lines was lost in 44, Hulst in 45, and Dunkirk in 46. So that's see, uh, a go. nice little string of battles exactly, to yeah. put the Spanish on the back foot. And it all kind of, it all kind of began in, it all kind of began with Recraw and 
while all the French, while the French were winning their victories, and they were also not only were they winning these victories, they were also establishing their own reputation for kind of military professionalism, and they were kind of displacing the Spanish as like the power to beat, essentially. The in terms of like, power. Exactly, that's the word I was looking for, thank you. While all that was happening, the Swedes were also winning their own victories against the Austrian Habsburgs, and they were winning a few decisive ones as well. One of the most important was the Battle of Jankau in March 1645. That was only 50 kilometers southeast of Prague, which is interesting because nearly 30 years to the kind of revolt happening, it all returns to Prague with a decisive Swedish victory. And this was a very important victory because with the defeat of the Holy Roman Empire here, the whole, like, at, at this point, I should have said earlier, but at this point from about 1643, people are getting very, very sick of the war and the idea of a peace is very much favoured. But what you have at this point is is what's called, I think, well, there's, a, there's an official name for it, but the long and short of it is they're negotiating a peace, but they're also fighting at the same time to try and gain the best terms. So they're they're not so desperate for peace that they're like, I just want peace right now, and that's that. They're like, I want peace, but maybe we could do a little bit better than the deal we have on the table now. Of course, that, that makes sense. If you win a decisive battle, then you're more likely to get uh, better terms at the peace table. It only makes sense. Yeah, and what I find interesting is that Imperial Army su- suffers such a great defeat at the Second Battle of Britain failed. The Imperial Army takes such a beating. It's 20,000 casualties, 5,000 prisoners, 46 guns. And wow. it costs the, the Swedish no more than uh, 4,000 killed or wounded. Wow. Uh, but what it did was imp- <laughs> impressed on Ferdinand III the need to include Sweden at the negotiating table. That was that was three years before this, this battle at, at Yankow. And it's kind of like... Much like with the French, much like what we said full stop with the 1640s, kind of everything coming apart for the Habsburgs, the French are destroying the Spanish. And as you can see here, the Swedes are also destroying the Austrians. So it's really not going well for the Habsburg family. There are very few kind of standout, decisive Habsburg victories throughout the 1640s. It's interesting because you do have a unified Germany defending itself. Yeah. So you would think they would have more success. You would think that, but you see, the unification was only really theoretical, and it was based on the kind of commitment to get rid of the Swedes from 1635. But everything got complicated with the French, because with the French getting involved, you suddenly had another power that you could lean on that hadn't just invaded you and ravaged your lands. Like, the French king could be seen as someone who would stand up for French Protestants. Weird and contradictory as that might sound, it it meant that you had someone else to rely on to kind of hold the emperor to account, so to speak. And one of the best ways to do that was to not always come to the emperor's aid when he requested it, which obviously went against the Peace of Prague from 1635 that we covered. But there you go, that was just the way it happened. Like, all these German princes, the big ones and the little ones, were looking out for themselves. They were they wanted Germany to be at peace, of course. They wanted the Holy Roman Empire to be at peace. They wanted the Thirty Years' War to end. But they also wanted some little some little nuggets for themselves as well. And sometimes one of the best ways to gain these nuggets is to gain leverage. And the French king offered such leverage. And especially when you see the French and the Swedes winning battles, suddenly it becomes possible for people like, say, the Elector of Brandenburg or the Elector of Saxony to think to themselves, hmm, maybe I'll actually be able to 
get something more out of this. And all those minor German princes as well, and even ones that had been like dispossessed by the Habsburgs in the past, all of them would think to themselves that they had this opportunity here to, to do something that they hadn't done before. And believe it or not, Sean, one of those people who thought that they could gain something was Maximilian, the Duke of Bavaria, the same guy who had been in cahoots with Ferdinand and the Habsburgs since the beginning. And Maximilian was looking to play both sides. And actually, the Bavarian diplomacy with the French and the Habsburgs throughout the 1640s, up until the final moment when the peace was signed, that's probably one of the most fascinating diplomatic threads going on at that time. And that, the, nice. reason, the reason for that is largely because you're, when you read how many times Maximilian flip-flopped, I mean, we can't even cover it. It's like he, he makes promises to one side while making promises to the other and then manages to scrape enough men together to to kind of gain more leverage for himself. And it just, it feels like it goes on and on. But it's hilarious because it just goes to show that loyalty at this point didn't mean all that much. Loyalty to the emperor, those old ideas of like German constitutionalism or the empire above all, they were they were fairly easily displaced by something as simple as like the self-interest of the the Duke of Bavaria. Oh, who, by the way, was the Elector of Bavaria by that point? But will I will I just say it? It does, you know, it 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 was a long time coming because if you have the Emperor himself breaking his own constitutional rules in defense of the constitution, then yeah. you know, then it, what is it for any of his subjects to follow those rules? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, the the bar hadn't really been set set very high, had it? So it's only really a matter of time before Maximilian. It, largely to defend himself as well, because the French are on their way. They'll have to march through his lands in order to get to Austria. He does not want his own homeland to be invaded yet again. So he thinks maybe he can make a fairly sweet deal with the French. And of course, yeah. this makes Ferdinand very unhappy. And like we said, all those victories that the Swedes achieved in in like from the second battle of Breitenfeld to and Yanko, the battle of Wittstock and the battle yeah. of Wittstock and everything else. And even like we were saying before, there's those, those three kind of battles from the Swedes side, the Wittstock second Breitenfeld and then Yankov all kind of culminating by 1645 in this realization by the Habsburgs that they really could not continue on. It was falling apart in Spain. It was falling apart in Austria and another thing that we haven't yet mentioned was that their gamble with Denmark hadn't worked either. You see, the Danes had been kind of brought in as a mercenary, so to speak, against the Swedes. One of the interesting things about this was when the Habsburgs tried to bring in the Danes. I mean, if you think about it logically, Sean, it's a good idea. Bring in the old enemy of Sweden to attack them in the rear while the Swedes are tearing up the Holy Roman Empire and offer the Danes such good deals that they'll feel kind of inclined to get involved and inclined to kind of capitalize on the fact that the Swedes are distracted. And it seems like quite a, a turnaround from the start of the war yes. when Denmark was the only one getting involved to try to <laughs> stop the Habsburgs. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It just goes to show you, sometimes history is just stranger than fiction. It, like It really is. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. So. <laughs> Could you imagine? Can you imagine trying to set this up in, like, Civilization Four or something? And, like, but like if I tried to set this up, it would be the case that, like, Denmark still wouldn't be talking to me because of what happened, like... 40 years beforehand or something. It would just end, and then, and then when they finally, you, you have to sue for peace, then D Denmark's like, right, well, now I'll go back to war with you. So. Yeah, yeah, there the you go. 
in the case of this war, it's actually called the Torstensen War. And that the reason for that is largely because one of the most important commanders on the Swedish side in this war was Lennart Torstensen. And he played a really important role in, in many ways, founding the Swedish Empire, like what would be the Swedish Empire for the next 60 or so years, because he captured some really important territories in Denmark in the course of this war. Right. And of course, of course, the Swedes felt justified doing this, because as far as they were concerned, a Protestant power, Denmark, had attacked them in the rear while they were fighting in Germany against the Catholic Habsburgs for the rights of German Protestants. Of course, it wasn't that simple. But it also would have stuck in their craw a little bit that the Danes were that opportunistic, that they hated the Swedes that much. Yeah. Sweden is the, the England of Scandinavia. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, on one level, you could say that that's true. But pretty much everything well, that had happened before, like the 1500s, was Denmark owning everyone. So Denmark and Norway were united in a personal union, and so were Sweden and Finland at this point. Okay, very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. It makes it makes covering Scandinavia a lot easier because basically there's two blocks instead of four going on. Yeah, that is much easier to think of. Yeah, <laughs> so considerate of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the the Torstensen War also ends in 1645 with basically a massive Swedish victory. So all these things happening at once, even while the Swedes were able to trounce the Danes, they were also able to win that really impressive, decisive victory at the Battle of Jankau. So with all this happening, with all the different walls crumbling in on the Habsburgs, it was kind of accepted that peace really did need to happen. So, the... But then what's, what was the French motivation to, to negotiate for peace? Now that they're in it, why, why not press their advantage well for the same reason everyone else wanted to engage in peace they believed initially at least now don't forget the the french did make peace with the holy roman empire but they stayed at war with the spanish habsburgs but the the french believed they could get more from the peace table than they could get from war or about to say the war table but there you go <laughs> The, the the reason why the the Spanish and French continued to fight afterwards, one of the major reasons at least, was because the Spanish didn't want to kind of accede to the kind of demands that the French were making of them. And there's several, yeah. several demands, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but that was one of the main reasons the conflict continued. On the other hand, the French were keen to end at least one war with one Habsburg family, because if they could do that, if you could make peace with the Austrian Habsburgs, but stay at peace with the Spanish, it was always going to be a lot easier than being at war with both. Of course, of course. Now, I was uh, alluding to the domestic crisis of the Fronde. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, that's that's a very... Actually, do you know, we talked a little bit about Louis XIV already, and one of the, one of the interesting things about him is that he was born into this era of the Fronde, which essentially were, was, was basically a French civil war, and saw a lot of the French nobility turning against the French crown, largely because the French king was very young, he was in a regency, but also because the people that were in charge of this regency, so Anne of Austria, his mother, and Cardinal Mazarin, so Richelieu's successor, they were very unpopular in France, and they were seen as kind of, not necessarily traitorous, but certainly making several bad decisions that didn't make a lot of the French nobility happy. So rather than stay loyal to the French king, a lot of these nobles decided to turn against him. And some even fought for the Spanish, would you believe? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So 
when one of the first things that Louis does, Louis the Fourteenth does when he reaches his majority in 1660, is he pardons some of those generals that fought against him during the front, fought against wow, the Bourbon okay. family. Yeah. So it kind of, it does come full circle. But yes, there is an awful lot going on at this point. And yeah. France is by no means secure. And that was one of the one of the major reasons why they came to the peace table in the first place was because they were having so much troubles at home. But they also, of course, wanted to make peace with at least one Habsburg branch. Yeah, and since they were being quite successful, it was a favourable time. It's quit when you're ahead. You know? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And th- that's not to say that the French like enjoyed being at war i mean you could you could find success as you said but at any point the tables could turn the spanish were down but that didn't mean that they were completely and totally out anything could happen and like the fronde proved the french crown itself was by no means completely secure and who knew maybe there were huguenots french protestants lurking in the shadows as well Hmm. Mm. so yes we come now to the peace of westphalia which actually contained two treaties in October 1648, the Treaty of Osnabrück and the Treaty of Münster. So, yes, it was a kind of a a dual-layered thing. One of those treaties, I believe it was Osnabrück, brought about peace between the Holy Roman Emperor and Sweden. The other one of Münster brought about peace between France and the Holy Roman Empire. So, when people talk about the Peace of Westphalia, they often talk about it like bring the Thirty Years' War to an end, oh, no more conflict and all that kind of thing. And they often mention that term, the balance of power as well, or like sovereignty or something like that. And as I, I, I covered this before in this series called Is Westphalia Overrated? And what I discovered, surprisingly enough, is that the Peace of Westphalia doesn't mention sovereignty. It doesn't mention the balance of power And it also does not recognize the independence of the Dutch, which is what some people say that it does as well. This piece of Westphalia didn't do any of that stuff. And you'd be interested to know, Sean, it didn't actually recognize the independence of the Dutch because the Dutch had been recognized as independent by the Holy Roman Emperor several, several years before this. Even just like by way of the Emperor, the Holy Roman Empire trading with the Dutch. Like we have to remember... The Dutch were not at war with the Holy Roman Empire. The Dutch were at war with the Spanish Habsburgs. And the Spanish Habsburgs and the Dutch had signed their own peace treaty in February of 1648. So the the Dutch and the Spanish were already at war. The Dutch were long gone. The Dutch were busy, like, actually doing peacetime things by the time the rest of Europe was sitting down to the Peace of Westphalia. Okay, so Dutch, you know, trendsetters. Yeah, the game. (laughs) They made peace before it was cool, basically. We have not exactly finished talking about the Thirty Years' War, because even while we have finished talking about the timeline and kind of, this is us summarizing it all in brief, we will be talking in more depth about individual things that happen. So, Sean, are you ready to join me for talk episodes throughout the rest of the Thirty Years' War? Well, absolutely. It would be my pleasure. And it would be an absolute shame if I didn't. Ah, there you go. There you go. Well then, without any further ado, I would like to say thank you all. Thanks so much to you all for joining us. My name is Zach. And my name is Sean. And you've been listening... To When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks. Thanks.
before we properly get into everything that's going on, we have an important thing to get through first. It's be fit. <laughs> no wait. If you're looking for ways to support, get in contact with, or inquire about this podcast, be fit is the best way to do it. And what is be fit, Sean? Well, B is for blog. When you get there, you'll be asked if you would like to get weekly updates on your email in the form of a telegram, sir. Yes. The newsletter obviously is not included in BFIT because there's no N in that. But the newsletter is great if you would like to stay in touch and for me to regularly, every Saturday in fact, send you news. And there's some good offers in there too. I'll give you 10% off the shop and for the month of April and May, you'll be able to get 20% off the new 30 Years War book that we have coming out, which is also very exciting. Oh, very exciting indeed. Shaney Mac, I didn't know you were handing out freebies. Yeah, well, sort of freebies. I do it for the love of history, you know. You know, that's just that's just who I am. The, yeah. the next way to talk directly to the host and creator of this podcast, you can contact WDFpodcast at hotmail.com. Yes. So he is not on Gmail. He's not doing it at all. But if you want to talk directly to the creator, our beloved Zach Twomey, you just get on there, send him an email, and he'll get in touch with you. Yes, I will. Nine times out of ten. Unless, do you know what? Do you know what's great about Hotmail? In a, do you know what really isn't great about Hotmail? Kind of way. I get so much because my because my email is just out there. I get so much spam from all sorts of ridiculous places. It like from Stripe fake Stripe accounts. All these like Discover card things. Like people think, oh, the the generic. I'm a Nigerian prince, and here's ten million dollars. But it's more. It's always like Square or Stripe or Circle has sent you $15 and just give us all your details to get it. And sometimes Hotmail's like, this is spam. And other times it's like, seems legit to me. And then sometimes it's like when I get a legitimate email, Hotmail's like, that's spam. So, yeah, the struggle with Hotmail. Yeah, it's not as good as Google. It's not, but I'm here now and I really just... just the effort of setting up another email address. I, I know, I know. Oh. To, to, and it's like not even like it's just an email address. You set up a Gmail and it's a, I don't know, it's a multi-platform account. Yeah. So you get, you, it, it invades your YouTube, it invades uh, what was your email, your, your Play Store. So it connects everything. And then you can't just have an email. It's like, I just want it so people will send me emails. It's like, yes, but would you like to sign into Chrome? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that right there in a nutshell is why i'm not switching to gmail uh hopefully someday hotmail will get another one but anyway we've gone on a long tangent and we better get back to where we are even though we're only on the, oh, no, the second one email all right be right f yes, yes. for for fish fish is for facebook f is for facebook i should say mm-hmm uh you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash when diplomacy fails, or yeah, WDF podcast for slash question mark multi permalinks, and then a huge like looping scroll of numbers and and read text. them all out there, Sean. All right, so uh, multi permalinks <laughs> equals two zero one seven. Oh, no, so if you want to do that. The simple way to do it is to simply go to When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, like the page, and then you'll see... He's still reading them. And then you'll see a simple button that says join group, and that will get you right in touch with the group straight away. Okay, Sean, you can stop reading them now. It's all good. I haven't even got to the ID part yet. Oh. Anyway, so F is for Facebook. So Facebook page and Facebook group, best way to keep in touch. And 
while we are building up to the 30 years war there's still time if you guys would like to connect with us in those places you'll be able to get regular in fact daily updates about the 30 years war and yeah it's a nice thing to do because you'll be making social media work well for you as opposed to the way it normally works which is just fill your newsfeed full of crap that you don't really care about if you would like to make history more prevalent in your newsfeed liking when diplomacy fails podcast or join the podcast group is a great way to do that in any case i is for oh i is for itunes hang on let me just open itunes here and you can also if you simply go to wdfpodcast.com the the actual website and you click rate or review or subscribe on itunes the big button there it'll take you straight to the right kind of itunes store for your country so that's the handiest way to do it as well if you'd like to do it that way please do rate and review and subscribe because i like when you rate review and subscribe it's a great way to get always get the latest episode of the podcast and by telling itunes that you like us the itunes algorithm knows that when diplomacy fails podcast is a good thing so it puts it out there even more and tell me, are you ever up in the high uh, percentages now on, on the different stores? Do you ever look around and see where you are on, on downloaded for podcast? Uh, because I think you did tell me that you were like number one or number two in Australia. I, that's supposed to have been five years ago. But in any case, you were still quite proud of it at the time. I so was. Does, does that still come around? Do you still end up on the top? Of yeah. the pile sometimes? Uh, to be honest, there's two things wrong with this. First thing, I hate iTunes so much, which is probably a bad thing to say, but I find it so annoying because it always wants to update itself, so I kind of sort of removed it from my computer. So I can't actually check the iTunes store all that regularly. The second point is that when I was checking the iTunes store regularly, it always just seemed like the same ones were at the top, no matter what I was doing. Like, even when I was doing Five Weeks to Run Wild and there was two episodes being released every day, and I was getting like sick amount of downloads, obviously, because of all the content. iTunes still had the same ones at the top every single time. They still had like uh, Hardcore History always was number one, no matter what. And I'm like, yeah, okay, Hardcore History is great and all. But like, am I never pushing through iTunes as censors where they're like, this guy's getting a lot of attention. We should push him forward. I guess not. So I kind of just got sick of waiting for things to change, so I basically just ignore all that stuff now. But that, right, does not, okay. that does not mean that you should not go and rate and review the podcast. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, if you decide that that's a bad thing to say, you can just edit it out anyway. That's true, that's true, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's almost funny in a way to keep it in, because people know, you see, people know the flaws that iTunes has, but they also know that it's like the world's biggest podcast. Like, I even know from my downloads, 80% or so of my downloads come from iTunes or Apple wow, podcasts. Okay. So wow. there's no point in me saying, don't use it, because most people yeah. would. So You're despite just the fact yourself in the foot. Like. Exactly. Despite the fact that Android is better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was iTunes. That was IT of be fit is to tell anyone or anything or anybody, because we know, even in this digital age, that the best way to spread the word is simply to talk to people and tell people about it. A personal recommendation is 90% more likely to see success than a recommendation you read online. I just made that figure up right then and there. It sounds legit, though. It really does. Like, yes. I can't tell you how much advertising does not work on me. If yeah. all, of the, all of the advertisements they put in front of YouTube videos, every time I'm, I'm hammering that skip button. And yeah. 
what they're advertising, I actually grow to resent. It's like yeah. a negative experience for me. So then when I see their product elsewhere, I go, oh, it's those guys, the guys that make yeah. me wait to watch what I want to watch. Exactly. Now it is five seconds, but it's still the... Yeah. It's still the fact they made me wait those five seconds, you know. Yeah, I I completely get where you're coming from. It's even happened where they sometimes they add, like they advertise like new films in the cinema, and I'm like, I'm not going to see that film because it's ruined my experience of whatever <laughs> vlogger or like random series I'm watching right then and there. So yeah, yeah completely get you. But tea is the best way. Well, I think it is, to be honest, the best way to support. Yeah. To, and it's and it's completely Absolutely. free. And it only takes a second. And But if the person's, like, genuinely interested, they might end up taking a little bit more than a second to find out the proper details. Tell you what, if, you, uh, if you're one of our subscribers and, and you're getting deliveries, maybe, Zach, you could print off a bunch of, like, business cards for when the plumacy fails. And mm. you could just give them the card with all of the details on it. Like, have you heard of? And then have it be like, tell a friend. It'll be yeah. a tell a friend card that I then know. they can go give to a friend. It's genius. Go ahead and do that. That sounds great. With every yeah. order. Like, just ship it along. If you're getting the Ferdinand t-shirt or getting the Frederick, Frederick t-shirt yeah. or, or make make what great again? Make the Habsburgs great again. Make the Habsburgs great again. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, if you're getting any of those T-shirts, you might you might see what we could do about getting business cards printed up for you. Yeah, do you know? You know, weirdly enough, business cards are the only things that I haven't got, and I don't know why. Because sometimes I'm in a situation where I'm like, I wish I had a business card, but hey, maybe in the future. I think I think that'll be the next thing I look at. I've got pretty much everything other than business cards. But yes, yeah. that is that is be fit, ladies and gentlemen. If you listen but all that's the way it, through the, that, the rambling be fit that's yeah. taken us 25 minutes to do. <laughs> Well, to be fair, we've had a good time doing it. So. Yes, as usual, as is usual. But th anyway, that's be fit. If you'd like to find ways to get in touch with support this podcast, that is a great way to do it. Be fit contains all the best ways, but you can also like us and follow us on Twitter at WDF Podcast. You can, of course, visit the website, wdfpodcast.com, join up with the newsletter, and, of course, support us financially on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Alrighty, let's get started with the actual meat and bones of this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.